Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode is supported by Earshots and Nukeproof and we've got a discount code for you, so make sure you keep listening to find out more. Headphones that work for riding, running and using in the gym have been an ongoing source of frustration for me. I bought a couple of different pairs of so-called sports headphones and I've had all sorts of issues like them falling out and being really uncomfortable to wear. That was until Earshots came along. Earshots are focused on creating headphones for action sports. Their Bluetooth headphones use an innovative proprietary magnetic ear clip design. This unique design can withstand the sharp shocks, speed and functional movements of action sports. These things have been specifically designed to work for what we do. I've been using Earshots since the start of the year and I was impressed from the start. Firstly, they arrive in minimal recyclable packaging, which is a refreshing change. Then they actually stay in your ears. I've tried them with a few different helmets and over various different types of terrain and I've never managed to get them to fall out. They're also really comfortable to wear and I can't personally even feel the magnetic gripping on my ears. So if you want to get the tunes going for some motivation while you're training or you want to listen to a podcast where you ride or hit the gym, then Earshots have got you covered. You can find out more over at earshots.com and as a downtime listener, you can get 10% off a pair of earshots during July by using the code downtime all in uppercase at the checkout. That brings them down to just under £80. There's free global shipping and a no questions asked 30-day returns policy. So head to earshots.com now. Nukeproof have entered the e-bike world recently with the aptly named Megawatt and it's available in Nukeproof dealers worldwide now. The design started from a Mega V4, but it's been engineered from the ground up around Shimano's latest EP8 motor. Nukeproof have made a strong start with their first e-bike, making use of test riders like Sam Hill, Nigel Page, Adam Brayton and Elliot Heap. Nukeproof were able to ensure that the bike delivers. Seb Stotts reviewed the Megawatt and said they've knocked it out of the park, so it sounds like all the hard work has paid off. The Megawatt has got 170mm of travel and it uses a mullet setup to optimise the packaging and the ride dynamics of the bike. Nukeproof have taken full advantage of the motor to tune the anti-squat characteristics so the Megawatt descends like a downhill bike but it's still going to get you back to the top of the hill with ease. The Kinematic is designed to be supple off the top but with tons of mid-stroke support to help with cornering and pumping and then it ramps up towards the end of the stroke. You can fit a 620mm water bottle on the frame and it's also got a gear accessory mount underneath the top tube which is something that I personally find super useful. There's three spec levels to choose from and you can check them all out as well as finding your nearest Nukeproof dealer over at Nukeproof.com. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. Don't forget I've got a brand new project launching soon. It's called Downtime EP and if you want to get involved and find out more then you can sign up over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP. Thanks to everyone that's already signed up and thanks for all the messages that you've sent saying how excited you are for what we're up to. It makes a massive difference and it really helps us get this thing over the line. Please make sure you're following the podcast on whatever platform you listen. There's probably a button there that says follow or subscribe. So hit that now. It's free and it means you'll get every episode as soon as it's available. If you can't find the button, then you can head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe where I've got links to all the major platforms there to help you. Also, I'd love it if you can give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook where I'm at Downtime Podcast. It's the best place to keep up to date with what's going on and it's always lovely to hear from you and to chat with you in the comments and the messages there. All right, this week I'm joined by Coach to the Stars, Alan Milway. We sat down to chat about the work that he does to help some of the world's best downhill racers be at the top of their game on race day. Have the demands of downhill racing changed? Are the risks increasing? Do changes in bikes and technology drive changes in physical requirements? Is data important and what are the key things to measure? This was a really interesting discussion for me and it definitely made me think about a few things differently. 
I hope it gives you something to think about too. So without further ado, here's Alan Milway. Alan Milway, welcome back to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you? Hey, Chris. Um, thanks for having me. Yes, it's nice to be nice to be back chatting to you. Yeah, it's been a good while. And uh, you've been busy. You've been out to the first two rounds of the, the Downhill World Cup already so far this year. Uh, how was it? Was it nice to be back at back at the races? Oh, it was amazing, if I'm honest. Um, it's something that, like, through going into lockdown, the last lockdown started um, literally just before we were off to, to Lusa. We were all ready to go. I remember having Joe and Charlie in the gym. They were all, literally all the numbers were coming together. We were really excited. Everyone was peaking. And then flights got cancelled, race got cancelled. And from that point on, it's been really difficult because we had to st- like reevaluate training and preparing for the season and last season was a bit of a funny one and obviously I, I couldn't go to him with lockdown and um everything so all through this winter and the postponement of Fort William and the cancellation of or the movement of the first race it's just please let's get back to bike racing because <laughs> that's why we, that's why we do it that's the that's the only reason we're, we're you know I do my job. The guys do their job is because we want to be better at racing bikes. And and that's it. It's not for an aesthetic goal. It's not to hit a certain weight or, you know, anything like that. We just want to race our bikes as best we can. And, and so to be back out at Leo gang and then just the other weekend in Leger was, was lovely. It, It really felt as though that's, this is why we do the job. Definitely. Yeah. And super hard for racers to kind of maintain that intensity and focus in training i guess when you don't quite know when you get to go and lay it down so hopefully this season's going to be a bit more straightforward in that that sort of respect uh, yeah 100 percent. i think over lockdown it was really interesting to see how the different riders approached the break you know and how we worked on it and some of them wanted to literally stop and take a couple of weeks. I know Joe Breeden was like that. Greg Minow was like that. They were like, look, I need to just come down, you know, chill for a bit. But Charlie, he was like, I'm getting bored, Al. I need a routine. I'm so used to, you know, just tell me what I should be doing today. And and that was really interesting. I I learned a lot about, I learned a lot about the riders. And this time we're having those conversations again, but this timeframes are so much shorter. You know, we've, in theory, we've got a bit of a break until the next World Cup, but when you actually look at the calendar, there's there's not really a break, so it's not it's not long. Yeah, nice one. And what what is it that kind of takes you to the races these days? What are your what would you say is your role there? Are you are you supporting athletes? Are you there for your own learning? Is it a bit of a balance? The the primary thing is I'm there as coach to Atherton Racing. Um, they're yeah. they're the guys I'm there for. Um, it's obviously been really difficult and um hard with g having that horrible accident that horrible crash mm-hmm. so he's not been there but um yeah that's my primary goal is there for atherton racing but obviously you know i've got athletes who aren't a part of that team and i'm trying to support them as best i can as well without any obvious conflict or you know um taking me away from my main core role um but yeah it's, it's trying to get the most out of the athletes over the course of the weekend and that's it I obviously learn a lot from being at the track, but although in years previously I might have had a more um, maybe even data-driven focus on trying to gather information, I feel as though I've almost done that now. And although 
I'd never dream of resting on my laurels and pretending I knew the demands of the sport fully. I, I certainly feel as though I can help a rider at the weekend get the best from their weekend. Yeah. And nice to see Millie Johnson then take her first uh, elite podium at, at Leger. That was awesome. You know, it, it was a really interesting one because <clears throat> that track at Leger, um, it really caused a lot of problems for a lot of people, you know, men and women. But the girls especially, I work with Millie, I work with uh, Veronica, I work with uh, Michaela. And those jumps, the jump at the top, it was a horrible blind step down where you sort of turn left as you went off it and very steep short landing into a turn that was causing a lot of problems uh because the beeline the sort of chicken route was crap you know it, it, mm-hmm. it wasn't the one to do and then the jump at the bottom coming out of the trees onto the onto the piste was just really poorly built um and those two sections was really interesting because it affected their whole approach to the race. They felt as though they weren't able to get into the run. They really felt as though they couldn't put a run together when actually I was trying to explain to them that, look, this is just two parts of the whole track. You've got 98% of the track is you're fine at, you're good at, you know, you're perfectly capable of doing that. But because they didn't necessarily have a strategy for what do I do if I don't do this jump? That was the big problem. And that's what I tried to work on with them. And uh, Millie, it, it worked really well because I spent a lot of time with her over the weekend and I kept going back up with her and we talked about how she was going to get over that first one. And, you know, she was like, well, I think I might just pop off it. And I was like, well, let's look at that and try it. And And then at the river jump, it was almost just building confidence that she could do it because I don't know if you saw, but if you didn't do that, your run was over. You know, there was no yeah. other, there was literally your runs over. So it was lovely to see her hit that in practice. And and I was there on the side and I was like, I was just screaming. I just, you've got the speed, you're fine. And then as soon as she went over, the cool thing with modern technology is by the time she got back to the pits, I'd sent her the video. She'd had the video. She was there. She could review it and go, well, that was easy. And I was like, yeah, of course it was. Cause you're, you know, you, you're world-class. It's not, the jump is not a problem. It's watching 15 guys do it and seat bounce themselves into the bushes. You know, that's the problem. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, fair play. And she actually slayed that bottom section of the track as well. I think she was the fastest rider through the bottom the bottom split. So she's obviously uh, obviously got the fitness. Well, yeah, I, I can't take I, – I certainly – I can't take credit for her fitness. I, it's, um, it's you know, the race weekends is where I help her the most. But she, she, was, she was focused on it and, you know, she went through that process and worked on it and was able to get through – I think it's when she's – Using her as an example, it's when a rider can come up with a strategy and they feel they can, they've got the whole track mapped out, that's when they're at their best. If there's a, a section on the track that's causing them problems, they're in two minds or they're not clear, that does have a real snowball effect and a knock-on effect to other, other areas of the track. Um, and there was a corner further up that the camera just completely flattened. It was a real shame. It's one where Troy crashed. Um, I think he crashed there both times, mm, um, yeah. but it was really off camber. You're in a horrible rut. You then had to hop high and then you're in an uphill and all of those, and Joe Breeden crashed there as well in his race run. They, they were really hard and trying to find the most appropriate line through there when you're riding off camber uphill on like this nest of routes is it's those things that 
if you haven't got a plan and you don't know, right, this is exactly what I'm going to do, your mind will get drawn to that. You know, you're not staying in the present for the rest of the track. You're always worrying about this one part and, and it can come and it can bite you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Tricky track. Well, let's, I want us to talk a little bit about kind of where downhill racing has been heading. And I guess I'm interested to get your thoughts on as someone that's been so involved with the sport for a good chunk of years now, how do you think downhill racing has changed over say the last five or 10 years and how has that kind of impacted on the demands on the riders? That's it's a really interesting question. Um, so my the first World Cup I went to was in Les in Switzerland in 2000. So 99-2000. So I've been at World Cups for over 20 years, which God dates me, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Danny won his – I was working with Danny for, I think, three or four years before he won world champs in 2011. And that was uh-huh. 10 years ago. So, you know, I, I, I feel as though I've seen the sport evolve and change and go through these different, you know, iterations in some degree. But the thing that I find interesting is when you reflect and you look back on it, you know, some of the riders who are winning back then are still, you know, Troy was fourth in Val in 2011, for example. You know, mm-hmm. that, that guy's right at the very top of the tree now. Um, Gwynny, Minar, 2011, they're still there. Brooke, 2012, he was winning. You know, Bruni was winning five years ago and obviously is multiple world champion. So there's some things that I think haven't changed in terms of the riders on the men's side. Um yeah. In the in the women's category, I think that's really interesting because I'd say the depth of field has increased and the skill level of the field has increased as well. So it's a scary thing if you look through Roots and Rain to see how many races Rachel won. You know, it's just race after race after race and she really did have a stranglehold on that women's field. But I don't think you'd say that now. I don't think you'd hang your hat on one rider and say, look, she's the one who's going to win this. And I think that makes it really exciting. Um, and watching the, the level of riders and watching what these girls are doing is, is, is impressive. You know, it really is. Some of the stuff, this, the technique they have when you watch Valley Ride, I was filming the top section in uh, Leo Gang and they come out the start straight and they've got a right-hand berm that's like a 90, almost back on themselves a little bit up into an off-camber. And the speed that girl carried around that berm was just, it was phenomenal. And, you know, it it, it is bringing other riders along as well. And I think that it's nice that um, she may well become a very dominant rider, but the pieces haven't fallen into place yet. And Miriam... I think Miriam's one of them who is really impressing me because she was winning races back in, I think she won in 2011, 2012, she was winning. So she's been around a whole decade, which is an amazing thing. Um, So that's just looking at the riders, you know, that there is a continuity and I think riders can have a relatively long career when you might look at downhill and think there's no way you can make a career of this for any long period. Um, and obviously people come into it and go out of it regularly, but if you win races, you can stay about, you know, experience, experience, I think in this sport is the biggest thing, you know, it's a challenge, it's a puzzle and knowing where that fine line is, 
is very, very difficult to do. Um, but some of the other things I think is really interesting. The, the bikes have obviously changed, um, yeah. but maybe not that much. I, I, th- I think when you look at, obviously we've had the whole wheel size debacle from 26 to 27 to 29 and then back to a mixed wheel, which it, it, it's amazing really. I, 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 I'm somewhat confused by the whole process. I think we're on, you know, <laughs> I think we're on faster bikes now, but I don't think we ever needed to come this way specifically. Uh-huh. I'm uh, a bit of a dinosaur, I guess. Um, but the geometry's improved and definitely got better. When you look at some of the bikes the guys were riding, they were tiny, you know, really small, quite steep. Um, I don't think PT ever raced a bike that fitted him, really, mm-hmm. you know. So these these bikes are certainly changing. Um but I don't know if the tra- I don't know if it's really changed that much. If I'm honest, I, I think that the the way that field is now is definitely deeper, and people are more professional in their approach. I wouldn't question that. I'd say there's a lot more people doing the right things, and the times are incredibly tight. And because of that, everything gets dragged onto this level where um, you need to put in a very good run, mistake free, on the you know, on the limit of where you need to be, uh, to get the result that you want. And I think that makes for an exciting sport. I think that takes us towards the realms of these well-established professional sports. Yeah, definitely. Do you think that change in geometry has changed the nature of how riders are positioned on the bike, how you ride the bike, maybe a more central weight balance, less off the back. And does that, does that alter the demand on the rider or the way you would approach getting the rider ready for that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it it does. I think that as I'm thinking about that question, you just asked it, it reminds me of a test session that I did at Revo bike park. I was with the Athertons. G was there. Charlie was there. And these guys are from different generations, you know, different racing generations. Charlie was on a full 29er. G was on a mixed wheel bike. He was on a mullet setup. And when you watch them ride and you're filming sections and you're feeding back, the way they approach the track is different. G will straight line more and he'll find something to turn off. So it's something that he feels is a ledge. You and I might not be able to (laughs) comprehend that he can find grip there, but he will hit something and turn off it. But Charlie opens the turn up a lot more. He stays really tall on the bike and very centered on the bike. And he he's so smooth on the bike and very quiet as well on the bike. You know, he's sort of flowing down the trail. And I know that that has come in. There was a time when the bike park juniors were coming through and they were hitting the middle of the turns and shrouping turns. And there was a lot of that that never made you go quicker you know that didn't help at all and we've almost come out the other side of that i I remember watching some juniors thinking you guys are you're working so hard on the bike you know there's such a high energy cost to this and the run looks so spectacular but i don't think they appreciated that the winning run is the one with the highest average speed and that to me is like you need that stamped on the, the you know as you leave the start hut that's what you need to you know, remember at the core of what you're doing, average speed is king really. And I'd say Charlie is a really good example of that. Um, and Joe is as well. And Greg is, Greg Minow is another one who he sort of will, he's, he evolves, 
he seems to have evolved with the bike as well and his style, but he's still, I think he needs convincing when to get off the main line. And that's not a negative. That's a positive. You know, he'll say, will you tell me why I should be nibbling up here or cutting inside there? Because if the main line, I can keep my average speed high, then why wouldn't I do that? Yeah. Okay. Do you think those, those you you gave Charlie and G as examples there? And I, I guess it feels like G maybe rides a little bit further off the back of the bike. Charlie's a little bit more central. Do you, would you coach them differently as a result of those differences in style? Like, would you, would G need certain strengths beyond where Charlie does and vice versa in different areas of the body? Or is it still a fundamentally the same thing? When it comes to the physical aspect, I, I don't think, I think, um, no is the short answer i wouldn't based on their style of riding but what you might find is that it's more their specific strengths and weaknesses and that's something that i will look at so when we were this winter charlie has got some incredible strengths in his repeatability to do things and some of his upper body strength has increased so much and you can see that on the bike and I'd say that that allows him to hold that central position at a higher speed for all the track, as opposed mm-hmm. to potentially holding that, holding that, holding that. And then as he gets lower down, he might lose that or be compromised. And that's when the mistakes come. Um, and G had, when I started, when we started at the start of this winter, we were doing some fitness testing and, and I chatted with him and we'd sat down over a coffee and gone for a lot of stuff. And I'd seen the gaps just from talking to him. I almost, it's really interesting, like over a cup of coffee, spend an hour chatting with G at the table. You know, my, he was at my kitchen table. We sat there chatting and I thought, you know what? I bet you this is what the issue is. And I could just get a sense of it. And sure enough, when we got him, you know, lab testing, there it was. And there, there was the gap and you could see where the problem needed to be addressed. And um, it's obviously on a bit of time it's so frustrating um for for g more than anyone because he he was looking really good he was he was very very different to what he was last year and um the times were looking brilliant they were pushing each other on and i felt as though i think his run in leo gang he was sort of 30th 31st something like that and he had a shocker of a run i think he was frustrated because he thought you know what i'm back here you know i can really do something um but just back to your point on coaching them their styles and G riding off the back of the bike and G drops his outside foot much more than Charlie. And, and the way that um, the tracks are now, that's something that has been really rewarding to be able to have input in. So, you know, to be at a track, to film them and to say, look, have you thought about trying this? Or I remember G saying to me at one of the sessions, he was like, why is my knee doing this? And I can't believe, why am I not doing that? And you know five ten years ago it would have been very difficult for me to to say look this is what you need to be doing because who the hell am am i to tell a multiple world champion how to potentially improve his technique but the fact that he's open to that and you can have a conversation and you know i've got such a cool i've got these video clips that will stay on my phone for a long time because we had the before and after and I'm just hollering at myself, you know, because he made this change and he was so much quicker through the corner. And I, I spend a lot of time on the hill and I come down on my trail bike and I get to the bottom and he sat there with a smile on his face and 
his mechanics there with the sat on his smile on his face. And I think his mechanic said, Oh, thanks for coming, Alan. You know, and it was like, <laughs> it was, it was, that was so nice, you know, because it, look, I didn't, I didn't make a big change, but to make him refocus or rethink something that he's hit that corner so many times to me, that is a, that is a big thing about what I'm trying to bring into my coaching now is these guys are almost riding on autopilot and that I don't think that's, helpful at all in in terms of skill acquisition yeah yeah having someone the right person or the right people trackside at world cup feels like it's a more and more important piece of the puzzle these days i think yeah and leger was a good example of that because there was so much going on and at some world cups there might be me like Fabian will be up there, Petey will be up there, Will Longdon will be up there, Couscous will be up there. A lot of the other coaches will be up there on the side of the track. And we're all in the same section, you know, and we're like, is it inside or outside? Or what about, is there a third way? And it, you know, I think uh, Leo Gang, there might be two sections like that. But Leger, bloody hell, it was all the way down. You know, wh- what about this? What about that? And I overheard Fabian talking. He was referring to one of his juniors and I could hear him on the, on the radio talking to the pits. And he was like, have we set the sag on his bike? His bike looks to be sitting up a bit high. And what about this? And I was like, wow, it was phenomenal, you know, for, for that sort of input and, you know, playing devil's advocate, is that too much input for a junior? You know, is it going to make him feel oppressed or is it going to feel, make them feel empowered? And again, that, like Fabian will know his athletes, he'll know the way to, you know, whether the athlete finds out about it or not. It's always these questions um, that I think are very helpful because it saves the rider a lot of time. They, you know, they can, I'll often send photos. I'll be in B practice. I'll be up on the hill early and Charlie will want photos. What's the track looking like? Has it changed overnight? Is there this inside line coming out? Is it dry? And that just means that when he gets on track, there's a little less, tentativeness you know he's like well let's just go inside because that's the one and you you still have to evolve as the weekend goes on just like a motocross track i think these tracks that are fresh it's brilliant because they do evolve a bit more like a motocross track where one line will disappear and you have to move to another one and i'd say that the guys who can adapt to that across the weekend are more successful as well yeah yeah definitely the tracks have uh have been providing some interest for sure already this season do you think do you think the level of kind of risk is increasing? I mean, you mentioned earlier that the level of depth of field means that you you have kind of got to be on the edge, but precise and accurate the whole way down. There's no no ability to kind of hold back, I don't think, these days. And also it feels like the, the average speeds of the, a lot of the tracks these days are maybe a little bit higher um, than they have been. Do, do you think... Do you think the level of risk that riders are having to take or put themselves in is increasing? Um, the thing is that when you when you reflect on the, the athletes in question, we're talking about guys who want to go out and win. I, I don't think you'd ever find someone at the very top of their sport at an international level who felt as though they'd be happy with doing a 90 percenter. Do you see what I mean? These guys are always, yeah. they're going to push the limit. And they're going to have a situation whereby they are on the edge. I think that the 
there's probably more of them who are on that limit and that's why qualifying when it's 60 qualifying it makes it hard because you can go and you can have what you think is you know a good clean steady run but in actual fact it was it wasn't um you weren't in that flow state you weren't almost doing it on autopilot because this is the thing when i say that it's it's a really interesting well, it sounds like a dichotomy, but if you're in practice and you're riding a track, you know, a million times and you're just riding it without thinking about anything, your your mind almost wanders off to what you're going to have for dinner or, you know, what you're going to spend your money on or some problem you've got at home. You're not really focused on the task in hand. Your mind's sort of wandering and you're maybe sat at 85%. It, it's repeatable, but it's not really doing anything. Now, when you get to a World Cup, you're very much where do I need to be how am I carrying speed how am I getting the most out of this track but when you come to your race run that what I think is the most critical thing now and what is becoming that I'm seeing more and more or I'm certainly thinking about more and more is how we can get the riders in a place where they can almost just stay in the present of enjoying that run and not not getting distracted, not thinking about, I need to break here, I need to get there, and you know, the mechanics of it too much. They're almost doing it in this nice flow where they've just got a rhythm because they seem to be the fastest runs. Um, and it seems to be the consequences of not being in that place are higher. So, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's you are going absolutely like a bull in a china shop and i think deprella watching deprella ride it's just frightening the kids like over the limit and when he gets it bang on he wins a world cup it's phenomenal but when he doesn't you know nearly bites his tongue off and he kamikazes himself down the hill and and that's scary to see i don't want to see that guy get hurt he's incredible rider and he's obviously had a very successful junior career so he he knows where the line is but as he's moved up to elites he's probably trying to go well how far you know do i have the self-confidence to trust that my best is good enough i don't need to ride right over my head and i think that's the that's the crux of it yeah and are there ways that you can kind of help reduce the risk to the athletes through the through the training side of things either i guess so that we don't crash in the first place and we're able to kind of manhandle our way out of sketchy situations or or being robust if we do end up hitting the ground or trees or rocks that, that's exactly it <clears throat> a lot of a lot of what we do and we put in that graft is it's it's an insurance policy and there'll be times when um i've seen many i've had so many messages where i'll get sent a screen grab or a photo or something where i was like God, i'm so glad that i'm strong you know because they've come off something wrong uh they've been able to hold themselves up off the bike one of my juniors, Connor Smith, you probably saw the crash. He went off the, the top step down and he jumped too far right and he had a massive crash into a tree. And I honestly thought that was, uh, it was disgusting. I was like, this kid's in a lot of trouble. And I literally rode straight down the hill to phone his dad because I thought I can't do anything. He had the medics. And the kid got up, you know, he, <laughs> he got up and he rode down the hill. And I was just, I was astounded. And the, the lad is strong. And I'm not saying that we can prevent injury, that not at all, we can't prevent injury, but potentially if he wasn't as strong as that and built like a tank, you know, maybe there's a dislocated shoulder. Maybe there's a, a bigger injury because of that. Um, and, and that's obviously 
the strength didn't stop him crashing and it never would. Also, the cardio side of things is really, really important because when you when you become tired, your concentration goes and your mind wanders and you, you're not able to focus. Your cognitive ability is massively affected with fatigue. And it's one of these, I find it interesting because when people become fatigued and their cognitive ability goes, they sometimes think that what they need to focus on is cognitive training. But you're actually trying to stop the precursor of that. You know, you're trying to, you're trying to stop getting into that place in the first, you know, in the first place. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, and I, I've got, I've seen these improvements in cardiovascular development with improvements in, in riding. And when you look at some of the best riders and you look at their, their aerobic development, it is incredible. So you sort of feel as though they're able to stay centered and calm and controlled and, you know, in the, in the moment without thinking bloody how my arms are burning, my legs are burning, my breathing's labored. And, and those are the things that take you, take you away from the task in hand. Yeah. When you say cognitive training, what sort of stuff are you talking about? Well, you, there's been this, there's stuff that has come from, um, a lot of field sports, rugby use, some eye tracking training. Um, there's these, obviously these light boards that you might've seen, that some people have been using. Uh, I've seen people juggling. It's these sorts of things that people are, are trying to keep themselves mentally sharp. And, you know, is that going to help me on the downhill bike? And, and that's, again, something that is an interesting question. And you can, you can reflect on it. And I think if we use the, those light boards, you, I don't know if you've seen, have you seen the guys using them or have you sort of seen them? Yeah, come about? there's a few, a few riders using them. Definitely. I think Camille Belange was talking about using them for warm up before races these days. Yeah. And I think this is where, so my process and I, I, I try and be quite pragmatic about these things. Um, and I think that seeing sort of the advent of social media and, widespread media sort of gives us glimpses into what people are doing and it, it lets us say oh, actually maybe that'll work for me but you as a coach i think it's really important to break it down and then try and explain and try and at least rationalize is it going to work and if it does to what degree and when you've got light boards for example if you've seen a video of bruni going into rebels you know athlete performance center and doing one of these batak boards you think, oh, okay, maybe he's trying to improve that. But potentially, I would think that Red Bull are probably trying to gather data to say, well, does a downhiller's reaction time differ from a rally car driver's reaction time? Does it differ <laughs> from, you know, another one of our athletes in an endurance sport? And the, these things are, are nothing new. Um, I was using a Batak board, I think it was 2005, I was doing something with Dirt Bike Rider with Team Green. So we had the motocross riders there and we had Ian Hutchinson there. Now, Ian Hutchinson is a, I think he's got a lap record for the TT. This guy goes around the TT at 130 mile an hour average speed. And then we had these motocross riders there. And it was really interesting because as one of the, the sort of battery of tests, they were on this light board, on this Batek board. And, you know, Ian Hutchinson was, I think he was better than the motocross riders at that task. Yeah. And I think we could probably say that's to be expected. You know, the guy, he has to process things coming at him at 130 mile an hour. Now, I've done 130 mile an hour on a motorcycle. Things come at you pretty quick, you know. <laughs> so 
you've got to say, well, is the Batak ball going to improve Ian Hutchinson's ability to ride his motorcycle or is his motorcycle riding improving his ability at this test? And if we look at, if you look at another sport, if we look at a stick and ball sport, so cricket, for example, what's fascinating about cricketers is they've got, I think it's between 0.2 and 0.3 of a second to decide what to do when the ball comes out of the bowler's hand. Okay. So they're trying to react to this, this bowler. And in their training, what's been shown is that the better batsmen are actually able to read the bowler. So they're almost making a preconceived idea on where the ball is going to go. Is it going to be bowled short? Is it going to be long? Is it going to be outside of stump? Is it going to be up into their ribs? And they're making decisions on what they're going to do based on the bowler. And it's actually much more difficult for them to judge what's going to happen to the ball when it's coming out of a bowling machine because they don't have those things to read off. Now, if we were to say to them, well, you know what, I want you to do this light board training in, you know, before you go out to bat, that's going to help you with your reaction time. Potentially you could say, okay, but it's skill specific. So it's surely much better to go, let's get a guy bowling at you before you go out to bat, because you'll be, you know, you'll be warmed up and you'll be ready to face these balls and you'll be looking for the cues from the bowler. So That's sort of when I look at the, these boards and go, you know what, I, I don't think they'll help them on the bike. But the flip side, and I think this is really interesting personally, is that period before you're racing, before your run, when you're warming up, one of the sort of side effects, as it was, of nerves, one of the psychosomatic sort of uh, the physical manifestations of nerves is you feel lethargic, you feel sleepy, you're like, I don't want to be here, I'd do anything not to be here. And if you're sat on the turbo trainer for too long, maybe those thoughts can consume you a little bit. But if you have set up this light board on the, in the truck, I can promise you, if you were trying to put those lights out, you are not thinking about anything else. You are not worrying about, am I going to go inside or outside? Am I going to, what's going to happen at the top? Am I, what happens if I win the race? What happens if I don't win the race? What happens if I get beaten by someone, I lose points to the championship? What happens if I hurt myself over that big step down? You're simply not thinking about those things. You're, you're in the present trying to put these bloody lights out. And, <laughs> you know, that makes you feel energized. You know, you're, you're, you're sharper. You feel good. You like, okay, that's, this is better. Right? Okay. I feel good now. And, for that reason, I, I certainly don't think they're not going to do any harm. And maybe you're, you know, if that's how you spend some time in the pits getting ready, you're getting sharp, you will go up there going, hey, I feel perky. You know, this is, this is good. Um, and for that reason, when you use something like this, it, it's, it's the why. If I, I do not feel as though uh, juggling balls is going to help you on a downhill bike, I don't feel as though improving your balance on a balanced board is going to help you balance on a bicycle. You know, I don't think those things cross over and I've, I've, I've struggled to find evidence of that because I've been asked a lot. Um, but I do think that if it keeps you in the present and it takes your mind off something and you're focused on, you know, um, something other than the stressful situation around you, that potentially is helpful. Yeah. Do you get riders, like you mentioned earlier, the kind of Instagram thing and these little glimpses into people's training or testing or whatever, does that mess with other riders' heads? Like, do you get your riders coming to you saying, well, such and such is doing this, should we be doing it? Like, how how do you manage that? All 
the time. <laughs> it's yeah, it, it, it really is. And the thing I find fascinating is the things that the thing is, everyone knows better. They all know better than this. We've been, I've had photographers come to a training session and we've been on the what bikes and I had not said a word. Okay. I hadn't said this. I hadn't said anything. There was three athletes in the room. I'm not going to name them. And two of them, as soon as the cameraman got the camera out, they said, you are not filming what's on our screens because we do not want people to know the session we're doing. Now, uh-huh. to me, that showed straight away that it was a very valid session. These guys had bought into it. They knew why they were doing it. They felt as though it was beneficial. They felt as though they got an edge on someone. They are not going to show you that. You know, and why am I, you know, if Camille has got something that is absolutely next level, that's going to mean that she can win the next world championships, she isn't going to post it on her Instagram. <laughs> you know, she's going to keep that quiet. And yeah. some of these things are coming out or have come out. There's there's a, a carbohydrate supplement that's, that's people are shouting about a little bit more now. And it's it's really shown to be doing doing the business and it, it means you can take on more carbohydrate without the sort of um, associated gut uh, discomfort, should we say. Okay. You know, if you're taking yeah. on more than 40 grams of carb an hour, 60 grams, oof, it doesn't do great things with your belly or your oral hygiene. Because if you think about it, if I shout at my daughter for drinking a Diet Coke, then, you know, as a professional road cyclist drinking sugary drinks all day long for 21 days, it's going to wreck your teeth. So yeah. this product started to come out and it's, it's funny because it's almost like a bit of a delayed response. You know, it, it, I think it was involved with Kipchoge's sub two hour marathon and these things, and, and it starts to come out. It's a bit delayed. British cycling did it with the heated trousers when they felt as though they're going to get that edge at the Olympics and then they're going to show the rest of the world. The same is really true in training. And I, I do think that there's a lot of red herrings that are thrown out there or a lot of stuff that is almost taken out of context. Like I might do a uh, a warm up drill or a rehab drill or something that works for a rider is really useful, is really beneficial. Gets a rotator cuff working in a way that I quite like, or something like that. And we'll put that out. And the, you know, people think it forms the core of the session. Or bloody hell, Milway's doing this with these guys. No, I'm doing it for four minutes of my session. You know, and and I think it is context and you've got to reflect on that. And I do, I personally would love it if we got to a stage where I could walk around the pits in the morning and collect everyone's mobile phone or, you know, you know, just block the socials. And it also comes to data. I think I sort of link it with data. There's so much data out there that I could collect, that a rider can collect and review and reflect on. And you've really got to have this filter to decide what do I need to think about and focus on and monitor and what do I just need to disregard and forget, you know, just let it float off into the ether. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make any odds. Yeah. Well, you've, yeah, you've, uh, I guess, you know, talked in the past about data collection. I think you're definitely one of the people that's been out and acquired quite a lot of data in kind of power, heart rate, accelerometer data on riders on track what are you still measuring stuff are there certain things that you find useful are you doing more measurement as the the kind of gadgets that are available to 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 take measurements have improved and got got easier to use like what are your what are your thoughts and what are you playing about with at the moment i'll tell you 
<laughs> it's, that's a really interesting question. So if you'd have asked me this question in January 2020, I'd have given you a very, very different answer. But thanks to COVID, I've, I've literally been cut off at the knees with a lot of this stuff. Okay, so uh-huh. the university was shut down. Um, I wasn't able to get access to a lot of the stuff that I would lean on quite a lot. So bar speed tracking, um, we had a lot of stuff in the lab that I like to use, a lot of force plate stuff. There was, I had a load, a raft of stuff that I like to keep an eye on. And I like to understand, am I making a change? Are they moving more quickly? How are they doing this? How are they doing that? I, I've got um, a blood testing kit that I take with me and we'll test stuff at a track or on a hill or whatever. And with COVID, the last thing I can do at a World Cup at the moment is really do some of the stuff that maybe I would have done. Mm-hmm. But that's helped me, that's really helped me appraise the situation and sort of rethink it a little bit. And I'm not, I'm trying to just essentially say, right, what do I need to track? What is important? And with the, the limited resources now available to me, what can I do? And a lot of it has gone remote. You know, I've not, I wasn't able to travel to see Greg. We had two things planned, had to both be cancelled. It's been really hard to make any sort of plans now. Traveling to Europe is still a complete pain in the neck. And it's these things that you have to sort of step back on and, and reevaluate and go, well, I don't, do I need that? And I've definitely come away from a lot of that stuff. I feel as though it's given me an insight into what I need to do and the direction I need to go in. But at the at this point, and I may change my opinion on this in the future, but at this point, I feel as though I know enough to do a good enough job in the various areas. Because the problem with data is, I sometimes look at coaching a bit like being a music producer. If you if you imagine you're in the you're in the booth, you've got the I can see your microphone. You've got a rapper's microphone there. I can see that. <laughs> so, so you're in, in the booth about to drop some bars, and I'm outside on I'm in the, the producer, and I've got this big mixing table, and I've got loads of faders, loads of sliders. Now, to me, a coach when you those sliders, each one of those is affecting a um, a characteristic or a an element of the sport in question. And the optimum is all of those sliders are pushed to the top. So you've got physical, you've got strength, you've got aerobic fitness, you've got lactate tolerance, you've got recovery. You know, those are, you've got balance potentially, you've got coordination, you've got all of these physical demands. Then you've got the, the technical ones. So your ability to ride off camber routes, how are you riding berms? How are you riding big jumps? How are you when it gets really steep? How are you at carrying speed? You've got, those sort of technical demands. And then you've got the psychological demands as well. So what are you like when, you know, um, you're in a race situation? What happens when you've got to do it on this one run? What happens if I bet you a hundred quid that you can't do something? Or I say to you, look, if I beat you on this or if someone beats you on that, there's a penalty to pay. What happens when there's pressure? How are you dealing with them? So I've got all these faders in front of me. And this is the kicker. This is the, this is the coaching. I push one fader up, another fader comes down. Okay? Yeah. That is that is the problem we've got to deal with. I do not have the as a physical as a human being, they can't all be ramped up to the very top. It's just impossible. You know, I cannot be the most powerful athlete out there because I'll have to have too much focus in the gym. It's simple, it's just the maths of it. You know, so something else will have to come away. If I'm just working on my bike skills and all I'm doing is doing these really cool jibs and I'm trials, God, 
I'm not spending enough time doing something else. So all the while, there's this fluidity. And then you throw in an injury. And all of a sudden, there's an injury. And you've got those faders suddenly come to light. And I've got to make sure that their shoulder doesn't collapse on them as they're riding down a hill. So I think to me, that is that is the, the tricky thing about coaching is trying to understand the individual and trying to get all of these elements at a good level. Because, and if I was to get too caught up in some accelerometer data, I might go, you know what, this is where I'm going to hang my hat. And I lean, to, I go to one side of this mixing board and then I just worry about that. And I almost disregard the other side. And I think that's one of the things that maybe I was guilty of in the past and I'm now trying to center myself a little more. I think I'm trying to center myself around the rider and trying to do more input a bit more into their technical riding and maybe how they can being a bit more prescriptive with how they ride their bike and suggesting mm-hmm. things to them. When in the past I would have said, well, these guys are world-class riders. They don't need me telling them how they might do something. But I found really good, a very positive response to some of the things we've discussed when it's come to how they practice. So from that point of view, I think that, it's giving me access to a wider range of these faders and trying to help them in that respect. Yeah. Interesting stuff. A couple of questions come to mind out of that. The first is, have you started betting with riders yet to try and create <laughs> some kind of pressure or drive? Cause you mentioned, you mentioned placing bets or yeah. there being consequence if someone beats them or whatever. Uh, we talked, yes. So we've talked about, <laughs> there's been a few things that we've done and one of them, uh, I won't go into specifics, but we sometimes have, um, we traffic light some of our sessions, whether they're on the bike or in the gym. So red, amber, green. And to me, green is like, you're just learning and playing and we're making sure something's working well. We're having fun. Amber is almost like testing is like we're testing something out. We're trying to get a number. We're trying to understand where we're at. On the bike, they might be doing stuff with tires, for example, comparing one to another. And then we've got the red. And the red is when like this shit matters. You know, this matters. And I've I've actually found as though when I've been looking back and reviewing, I felt as though some of the athletes weren't doing enough red and they weren't doing enough green. It was too much amber. And amber's like the middle ground. And so they weren't, when it's not green, you're not potentially open to failure or you're open to trying something new or you're open yeah. to, you know what, let's do this because I just want to try it. And that hampers development. Uh, and that's been shown in literature and across multiple sports. But then you've got the red. And unfortunately, whether you like it or not, if you're a competitive athlete, no one gives a monkeys about the amber in the green sessions. You're judged on the red sessions. And if there isn't enough of that, I think that you don't have the mental fortitude to deal with stuff and, you know, what it's like to get beaten or what it's like for this or what it's like when, you know, I, I feel as though there's some more we can do in this area, definitely. And and I like to do those red sessions. And I, I've been writing quotes on the board. on the If, if you ever go into the Atherton's um, HQ gym on the mirror, I'll often put, you know, um, quotes that the riders have said. And I remember Charlie saying something like, I'm never hungry when I'm scared. And there was something like, and that was about a gym session. You know, that was about, he was scared of that session. And, and, and that was good. That was, yeah. look, we're not doing this all the time. This is not all the time. Let's be clear. He built up to that. They'd had a month's notice. Uh, there was one of the sessions where I said to them, boys, I'm training for this and I'm, 
I'm going to try and beat you on this one challenge. And <laughs> I'm willing to turn myself inside out to do this. And it was a challenge that we weren't doing in our gym sessions. So it was homework, you know, yeah. and that was my way to say to them, look, if I beat you on this, you haven't been doing your homework. It's as simple as that. And it's just trying to get them to um, work to something because you've only got what, six races a year, seven races a year when you can actually be judged. And those, those were the ones that make or break your career. That gives you the salary that gives you the bikes that, you know, that gives you the YouTube lifestyle for a lot of them. It's, yeah. it's, and I think there should be more structure to that. And from a coach's point of view, I think I need to, I need to support that side. I don't just need to go, well, that's their problem or send them to a psychologist. You know, I, I don't believe that's, that's uh, responsible because I feel as though I understand enough about it to go, look, you know, this is what matters. Let's, let's make it matter. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. The, the second question I had coming out of that, if you're pairing back the amount of measurement that you do, is there is there something like one or two things maybe that are that you feel are kind of fundamental that you always want to keep a track on, whether it, I don't know, like heart rate variability for training recovery, that sort of stuff. Are there particular <laughs> things that you would really not want to drop as a measurement? Yeah, absolutely. Um I think if the gym was to burn down, I'd drag the watt bikes out first. Um, okay. That they've been really, really good, really helpful. Um, uh-huh. I find that having wattage and heart rate when you've got two variables is it's really interesting because you can compare. So obviously with fitness, if if I was to do, um, let's say two hundred and fifty watts, and I was to sit at two hundred and fifty watts for ten minutes, and my heart rate was at one hundred and fifty beats a minute. In theory, the fitter I get for that 250 watts, my heart rate will come down. So, you know, that's that's very simple concept, but you can show adaptation. You can show how someone is. And you can also see if someone's ready to go or not or they're tired. So I can throw them back into a session sort of at this time of year when they've been out of the gym for a couple of weeks. They've been racing for five weeks in Europe and just go, right, well, let's have a look. I know that at this wattage, this is your response to it. And this is also, I use a lot of stuff with RPE. So it's their rate of perceived exertion. How does it feel? Mm-hmm. And that's been really interesting because you'll, I, I did some, I, I referenced it earlier, the preseason testing with G. And we made, yeah. we made, I think it was a 33% improvement in one area over seven weeks. Wow. And that was phenomenal. Now, let's be clear, he wasn't in a great place with what we were testing. You know, that uh-huh. it, it wasn't, it wasn't, great and but we could, i knew it wasn't great his results weren't great his performance hadn't been where it wanted to be and we were like well let's address it but the in, the most interesting thing for me was this race his rate of perceived exertion like how he felt you know an effort that at one point was a a 14 now it's on a scale of 6 to 20 so six, okay. six is sort of lying down watching tv like absolutely chilling and 20 is yeah. I cannot do another second of this and 13 is what we call somewhat hard. So 13 is somewhat hard. So if someone's put, and 15 is hard, and 17 is very hard. So if someone's put 14, that's not comfortable, is it? That's like, you know, this is not comfortable. And then seven weeks later, I think he said it was an 11, and 11 is light. And and all of a sudden, G 
you see what I mean? I get an insight into that individual straight away. Oh, I can send this yeah. guy out. He can do that all day if he feels it's very light. But there's no way I can send him out to do that all day if he's rating as a 14 because I know that mentally, forget the physicality side of it, like he's going to be knackered. Like that night, he's going to be, oh, that was hard. But if, it, if he feels as though it's an 11, then hey, that's good. I can do a bit more of that. It's not going to stress him. And I know physiologically it's not going to cause him any problems. Yeah, and that never runs out of batteries either, does it, RPE? Well, this is, you know what? So I've got, I'm so lucky. I've, I've got an e-bike. I love it. This Scott um, e-bike is just so much fun. It's, you know, I self-uplift on it. And I've got a Scott Addict road bike that, again, is just a rocket ship. And I have to be so diligent that I charge the gears on my road bike and I charge <laughs> the battery on my e-bike, you know, because it's you've got to stay on top of it. And I think that with gadgets, going back to sort of fitness gadgets or things you track, you, you've got to get to that point where you're not reliant on expensive equipment. I've been, yeah. you know, the university has got this incredible force plate and the bloody thing wasn't working for months. And I've used the catapult system and that wasn't using, that wasn't working properly and I couldn't get the data off it. And it's, it's, it gives you some sexy data and some graphs and some this and some that, but you cannot, I don't believe you can lean on that for the core pillars of what you do. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So with, you mentioned that you, you know, you'd carry the watt bikes out of the burning gym first. Does that mean that you'd also like for a lot of your riders when they're out on bikes, would you have them wearing a heart rate monitor and a, and a power meter on the bike to add to that data set? Or are you more relaxed when it's outside of a gym environment? No, I, I love heart rate and power. I think it's really valid. I think it's um, very useful to have. And also it's becoming a lot cheaper. It's not, it's not something, you know, when I started, um, when I started coaching, well, when I, when I was riding myself, I was at the university, but I was a sports scholar at the University of Birmingham. So in 99, 2000, 2001, I remember going to the lab to test on an SRM crank. And I'd heard of these mythical SRM cranks that the Tour de France riders had. And, you know, you could only really use them in a lab and you've got this data. And I remember doing, I did some testing and they told me some information. And I was like, this is pointless like what am i going to do with this data you know this is i have to go away and figure out how to improve this data on my own and then come back and they can tell me whether i've done it or not and yeah. you know a lab test is expensive when you get a physiologist involved and you've got a higher facility you know it's hundreds of pounds but now you know you can buy stages cranked for a couple of hundred quid and a head unit to match and, and it really is it is open and the, the one problem, and this is the big problem that we talked earlier about data and what you think about and what you look at and what you, you take on and what you don't take on. The thing that really gets to me, and I do see a lot of negatives to them, I have to say, is the Zwift and the um, Strava because people turn what is a building block ride or a building block training session into a competitive outcome. Uh -huh. So they don't give themselves that time to prepare for anything. And they'll, they'll constantly be recording a Strava on their mountain bike to go, well, did yesterday's interval session actually help me on my mountain bike? Because am I going to go fast? Am I going to get PB? Uh, and I think that's really scary because we're looking at preparing you over a period of time. It's building blocks. You know, it's like me 
I've done a few house renovations in my time and I've been through, God, we've been through it all with, with these things. It's a bit like me turning up the next morning. Have you built, have you built that room yet? Have you built that? Have you done that? <laughs> Give me a bloody chance, you know, come back in four weeks and you'll see a change. And I do really think that that's a danger and a professional athlete is much better at that because they don't care. They don't give a monkeys about, they care about standing on a world cup podium, getting a top 10 at a world cup. That's what they're striving for. And I think for an amateur who works nine to five, who doesn't do that, he wants to take these victories in other ways. And unfortunately it's all virtual now, isn't it? So you can try and get a virtual one up on someone, but maybe yeah. you've not, you're not willing to wait six weeks to get that. You want the instant gratification. So yeah, making every session a red session, basically. Yeah, exactly, exactly that. That's exactly it, and and that to me, and and I've certainly found, um, I like I went out on my road bike on Saturday, and the I stopped for a coffee halfway around. I did a few hours, and I, I the guy in the coffee shop came. I was sitting outside, and he came out, and he was looking at my my road bike, and he was absolutely loving it. And I had my stages um, head unit on, and he was like, "Oh, how far have you been today?" And I was like, "No idea, mate." And he, he, could, he couldn't get his head around it. He was like, what do you mean? I said, I've left it turned off today. And he, to him, it didn't process at all because he was quite into his road cycling. And he just thought I was yeah. an idiot. He was like, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I'm going out for, to me, that was a green ride. You know, I, yeah. I want to go out of the house. I've had a busy week. I've got a few hours to myself. My daughter's, you know, with her granny. And let's, let's just chill. And let's, I know I'm aerobic. I know what I need to do to stay in that aerobic zone. Listen to a, motocross podcast and came home and and yeah. you know if i'd have been on strava and i'd have got 15th up my favorite hill i might <laughs> i might have looked at that ride differently mine mountains i i might have gone oh actually yeah. i didn't do very oh that was a bit of a shit ride and that's that's awful you know we need to get through that yeah interesting stuff i want i want to just talk a little bit about some of the stuff that goes on throughout a world cup week beyond what goes on on track, I guess, because yeah. there's a lot of process that riders go through these days to, I guess, just to make sure that they're in peak condition throughout the race. You've seen people doing all kinds of stuff, TRX, warm ups, cool down, stretching, foam rolling, ice baths, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah. What takes through maybe some of the items that you think are important for an athlete throughout a world cup week and how they fit and what they're doing for the rider. I think a nice way to answer that is to is to try and I'll try not to waffle, but to almost take you through the a World Cup weekend because mm-hmm. um, so we've obviously had all this COVID uh, restrictions to travel and actually getting to Europe is really hard. Um, I've had to have so many pieces of paper. The athletes had to have so many pieces of paper, and generally we've not been able to fly. So Monday or Tuesday you'll drive down, so you've got a long travel. Leo Gang I think was twelve hours from Calais. And I'm three hours from Folkestone, from the Eurotunnel. Yeah. So you've got 12 hours there. Leger's, well, we much easier, but that's still eight or nine. So the first thing is trying to unpick some of that. You're sat in a car or a van for a long period of time. Hip flexors go tight. You're not braced in your trunk very much. You're sort of slumped. Lower back might be feeling sore. And you're, you're, you're a little stiff. So we try and unpick that. Then you've got Wednesday, which is track walk. Now, the, the way it works is a lot of these guys will have media commitments in the morning. So Sven or any of the other photographers will be tasked with getting headshots or promotion for Red Bull Hardline or 
you know, at Leo Gang, they had to do these um, walk-on shots that you, you'll see on the graphics of the Red Bull screen. They sort of walk on yeah. and fold their arms. So they had to do all that in the morning. And then we got the hill for track walk. And it's really worth understanding that track walk is quite simply a quite a long hike. You know, we're getting a lift to the top of the, the mountain and it's walking just down. Now, anything that where you're walking down a hill you have to use the muscles in an eccentric way. You're using them as a break, basically. You're trying to stop yourself tumbling forward. And there's quite a lot of muscle damage with eccentric contractions, um, let alone the fact that it's really off-road, it's technical, it's tricky. And a lot of the guys and girls have got into actually getting some proper equipment for it. You know, hiking boots. Um, Dino's been using like hiking poles. Greg bought some hiking poles for Leger and he fell over more times using the hiking poles. So he just launched, <laughs> launched them. It was, it was hilarious. So, you know, it's trying to go, right, I need to get down this hill. I need to not make myself any worse after this two and a half hour hike. Because it is, I think it's a two and a half hour hike if you're doing it with normal people. And if you're doing it with Joe Breeden, it's about four and a half hours. Because <laughs> <laughs> Joe's the world's slowest on a track walk. So... <laughs> It's, it's a, you know, it takes a long time. So after that, we want to recover. So we all go on a spin. 20, 30 minutes, nice and easy, nice and flat. And then we'll do some cold water therapy. So we've got in the, the river. There's a lovely stream in Leo again. We all just sat in it, literally sat in it, um, five, 10 minutes. And then go up and some of them might have a massage. So they're trying to unpick the day. Um, and then come Thursday... Thursday's a very big day of riding. They're doing practice in the morning. There's a big overlap between group B and group A practice, which is quite interesting. Not necessarily working the best, I don't think, for the riders. Um, but whichever way you look at it, I think Millie could be on track and Veronica could be on track from like nine in the morning to about five at night. So wow. it's, it's a huge window. So you're talking about nutrition. You're talking about um, a good warm-up. You're talking about staying out of the heat. You're talking about... Um, hydration and then at the end of all of that you're talking about trying to cool down nicely and then get enough food in you and get your feet up and actually recover from it so those first two days are the are the big days really physically and then friday is much shorter but um it's qualifying day we've we're racing on it well, we have been the past two races on the saturday so mm-hmm. it's this warm-up you'll talk about with TRX is essentially you're going from a period where you might have been off the track for a couple of hours. I think um, Andreas had quite a long time. He seemed to, it was like three hours or something. And, you know, you want to get yourself in a place where you're familiar with the track, you're really clear on what you're doing. So you might be going through GoPro footage. Um, after track walk on a Wednesday, we'll, all, we'll often sit down and have taken photos of the track and go through a course preview maybe at Leger one of the track builders had put a course preview up and so we were like trying to go through that so that by the morning of first practice everyone knew where they were going and that's a massive advantage you're not coming around the corner going what happens here does it go left or right does it go steep do I stay off the brakes or do I be hard on the brakes they could just get into it so from a you've got the physical side of things, you've got the technical side of things with the bike setup is what we're doing with the bike and how we're getting that sorted. But also every time they're on track, they're in a position where they, they're on, you know, they're not putting in coasting runs all the time. They're actually getting up to speed in a nice, consistent, progressive manner. Yeah. 
and they're uh, they're exposed i guess at that point right they're in front of the media they're in front of the other riders it's a competition like even though it's practice there's an element of showing your hand right from the very very start um, that's a massive it's such a valid point to make it really is there's no hiding um there's a couple of couple of really i'll give you an old example and a very very new example Hafiel 2014 mm-hmm. stood on the side of the track with an ipad and there was this section where you could either run low or you could jump across this like gully and stay high and I remember Sven was on the track as well and he and Sam Hill was on the track and he said to Sam, he's like, which line are you going to take? And he's like, I'm not going to do it while those iPad wankers are stood there. <laughs> and, you know, because he knew that like one of my jobs as well as the other guys up there was to feed that back and to go, yeah. well, look where Sam's going. And then this weekend just gone, it was really interesting because I was with um, Chaos Seagrave and I was sort of on just chatting with him on the side of the track and further up was Chris Kilmurray, who's Tane's coach. And I think Miriam had come through and Miriam did this line down the course and chaos was like, that probably isn't the line Miriam's going to do. Every time she sees Chris on the track, she puts the anchors on or goes on a different line. And it was really interesting to see how guarded. Now I haven't got Miriam might tell me that's bollocks. You know, she might disregard that, but Mm. you can understand what I'm saying here is that people don't necessarily want to show their hand. and, And I've seen some lines that, Greg's talked about, but he's not done until the race because he hasn't wanted to show his hand. And Reese was doing a couple of lines that were phenomenal. Like hats off to the guy, he did some great lines, but maybe he showed his hand too early, you know, because I'd found out about them. You know, John Lawler had it on Vital Raw and had posted it that evening and and people were, the riders watched this stuff. Where's he going? Because as much as we're trying to be on the track, it's, it's impossible to be everywhere at once. And, Although we're not necessarily reacting to these things, there might be some things we've not noticed or not spotted or someone's got a different viewpoint on it. And it's just nice to be, in a way, educated on that, whether yeah. we want to do it or not. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Where where do you think the whole thing is kind of going then? Are we? Do you think we're at the point where we're getting into very much kind of the marginal gains territory as the sport gets older and evolves? Or do you think there's still... Uh, big leaps to be had or big advantages to be found with certain techniques or training methods or whatever it happens to be? Um, That's a really hard one to say. If I go back to my potentially poor music producer analogy, (laughs) um, I think that I'd almost look at it on an individual basis. So if you had a rider who when you looked at their sort of mixing desk, there was a couple of faders that could still be quite low. And it might be that they've not realized that yet, or the coach hasn't realized that yet, or the bike manufacturer has got them on a pretty poor bike. Uh I'd say that most of the bikes are pretty good. I'd say that there are still some poor components, poor geometries, you know, poor uh, race machines out there that people have to work pretty hard behind the scenes to make them, make them go well. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things that we've seen is that the data logging has become much more prevalent. It's a a lot more people are using motion instruments, um, much more consumer friendly data. Mm -hmm. But even a couple of years ago, I remember chatting with one of the mechanics and, and they were telling me some of the data numbers and some of the speeds and the accelerations that the rider was going through, but it was, that wasn't the case. That was the movement of the handlebar. 
you know, okay. and it, it was different. And, and I think there is still a lot that we can learn because um, at the moment, I don't believe there is someone who is sort of a race engineer level qualified sort of data analyst going yeah. through this at the race. I'm, I may well be wrong. And I'm, I'm not saying, I think Jack is amazing. Bruni's mechanic. He, he's really on top of a lot of this stuff. Yeah. But then the bike he runs is from what I understand, a very fast bike. Okay. So fast rebound. It, it's very lively mm-hmm. and that makes the bike fast, but there's quite a big consequence to pay when it goes wrong with that bike. And it's not necessarily a nice bike to ride. So a fast bike for Bruni, if you put Greg on that bike, he might be like, get me off this bike. It's too fast. He'll slow it down because he wants something that he can be the one to push it to the edge, knowing the bike's not going to buck him off like an angry bull. It's going to give him a bit more, there's a bit more compliance there. Yeah. So it, I do think that these things are still rider specific and there might be some areas of, a, there's some areas of some riders that I look at and think, I've, I do think that you could probably be a lot better in this one area, but will that make the better? Maybe not. I might push this one fader up. So I'm super happy with it. But then somewhere across the board, this other one comes down that actually was the critical, you know, the critical thing for him or her. So it, it really is. I think that when more of the girls get used to jumping big and get comfortable on uncomfortable jumps. That's when I, I think that they'll grow again. They'll go again. And, you know, Leo gang, that boot at the bottom is massive, you know, Millie, um, getting used to that, that river jump at the bottom when it was bucking her, you know, Valley. I don't think Valley, I'm not sure whether she did that top jump or I think Tane did it just on the first, like, couple of runs of race day yeah so i think those are some areas that might maybe i still don't think the the when you look at um the field there's some areas and the girls are getting so technically good now that jumping maybe is one of them that they could still improve on yeah um and with the men i think that it'll be interesting to see because i don't think we're going to turn downhillers into downhill skiers for example i, I don't Downhill skiers, those lads are very big and they're very strong. And we I don't think it's going to go that way because the Troys and Dannys who are sort of mid-60 kilos riders versus the Brooke McDonald's and the Minars and the Gs who are in their 80 kilos, you know, there are going to be these differences, but they can still compete and, and, and race each other with such tight margins. Yeah, it's awesome to see. And it, there's a lot, a lot going on. And I guess... I don't know whether there's there's a mark there's kind of gains to be had in working holistically, and I don't know whether anyone's doing this, but you've it's no well, it never was just the rider and the bike. There was always something, but that support around the rider, the network seems to be growing. You've got like maybe a physical coach, psychological support, masters or physios. You've got mechanics, engineers. Yeah. You've got people up on the hill filming and and line spotting. How do you think there's good examples of of those group of support team kind of working holistically together to get the best out of the athlete? Or do you think there's still room there for people to work together better as a unit? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It does definitely make sense. And I'd say that um, one of the things that I've loved about being back with the Athertons for these first two races is that dynamic has Uh been is so nice it really is like tom lloyd has stepped up into this team manager role and he's fair play to lloydie you know he, he's 
everyone wants to do the job. Everyone wants to be there. We've got this amazing chef, Phil, who we all want to take home with us. Like, <laughs> he's just the nicest guy. He drives a super Impreza, like, rally car. He, he's like a Michelin-starred chef. We all think he's the nicest dude. And <clears throat> we're all trying to work for each other. The mechanics are friendly. There's banter. We sit around the table and there's, like, how did your day go? And everyone talks about one of the things that went well and didn't go so well. And I just love it. And and I think you've seen that. It's a shame, like Leo Gang, the Andy was flying, you know, Andreas could have been right up there, but the rain played its part, didn't it? You know, yeah. just screwed that. Charlie, he had someone crash on his, like in his time training, someone crashed on one run and then he came off on another. But when he pieced his two runs together, I think his time was third fastest in time training. Uh-huh. And, you know, and then Millie was on the podium. So I, I'd say that um, that is an example of a team that we still can grow. You could add a masseur into that or a physio. You could add a psychologist into that. But I just don't think the budgets are there at the moment. And to me, that's one area that may well grow is when you look at these teams and when some teams are all show and no go, it's a lot of like bluster, huge Uh truck, everything's there, but under it, the riders are cooking for themselves. You know, there's no real dynamic to go, look, how are we going to get the best from the rider here? Is the best use of their time this weekend to be cooking and doing the dishes? Now that's not to say they shouldn't be willing to do it. Yeah. And I think that that says a lot about their character but I'd much prefer if, you know, if my racehorse is is done his job during the day, put your feet up, mate. I will do that. That is my role. And I'm willing to do what it takes to, to, to help you. And if you want me to walk up the track and take photos of a section, I'll go and do that. You know, I'll go back up after your, when you're back at the chalet and I'll go up there on my own and do it or whatever. And I, I'd say that I wonder because these things aren't, when you look at tennis, for example, there's this entourage that goes with them. And when you look at other, in, when you look at road cycling, for example, the crew that's around the team is is much more has a much greater depth than we see in downhill. Yeah. And the only thing, let's be clear on this, and I think that this is the biggest shame for me is I don't know whether the sponsors will see the value in it because you know, Cade incredible rider i love watching that guy and he probably gets he's he can win world cups he's got the skills he's got the talent and he's also got an iphone that he can film him doing a 360 ridiculous bar spin nose bonk over a 100 foot jump and that's not necessarily cost anyone to invest in him for him to film or chaos to film him do you see what i mean Yeah, yeah and he and the value for the brand is so big and and just using his him and his example because he's got such a wide breadth of um, following and people just love watching him ride a bike. It's whether a sponsor will go, you know what, let's pump all this money into one area that may not get any coverage and does it make any difference to us if the result changes? Mm. You know, does it matter? And, and I think that is where you wonder, you know, are we going to just be bombarded by – you know, the Instagram feed and the coverage and the content and the, the, the videographers filming these segments and the, the Seminex style videos, which are amazing. You know, I love watching Seminex videos. I think they're awesome, but uh, he's not trying to race. You know, it's whether we're, we're also willing to go, I, I am willing to pay the money to support the guy to win the race. And 
when he does that, the bike sales and the clothing sales and the energy drink sales and all of these things are going to come back in the, the sponsor's direction. Yeah, that's another podcast in itself, I think. It's a, it's yeah. a really tricky area for sure. Interesting stuff. So the riders have got a bit of a gap now, like five weeks uh, out till the next World Cup. What what do riders do with that? And, it, and does it vary? Like are, are some riders looking to close maybe gaps or weaknesses that they feel like they've found or are people just looking to maintain? What do they do with that gap? Or, or they go and race hardline? <laughs> Well, yeah, well, this is this is it, isn't it? I, I, when you look at it, there really isn't that much time. I think for the British riders, there was the opportunity to go to Hamsterley this weekend for the first national race. Then next weekend is um, national champs and Bala. And then the weekend after that, I think, is Hardline. And then um, the weekend after that, they might have a weekend off. And then you're probably traveling out to Maribor because I think there's an IXS Cup and a European Champs before Maribor. So it's, and then I think Greg is still out in Aura in Sweden doing um, like a bike festival. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, this is where you've got to manage the commitments and you've got to work out what do these guys and girls need. I, I know Veronica, for example, she went straight on. She had a bad weekend. She really wasn't happy. The girl's riding so well. And she's not been able to show it in these first two races. And I think she, she's gone back out for an Italian like team camp. And then she's got her national champs next weekend. So for me, I'm almost trying to put a little bit of a breather in there somewhere to go, look, just, you know, you've been on the road for five weeks. You've got to relax and have a couple of days off. And I, I yeah. don't necessarily, I almost think going to the beach for two days would be a good thing. You know, okay. I don't think that extra one or two days downhill is going to make a jot of difference at this point in the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think fatigue, fatigue's the enemy really at the moment, mental and physical. I think you should be sharp. You should be enjoying riding your bike. You should be strong. You should be mobile. Any niggles are taken care of. So it's a bit of a chance to reflect and, you know, everyone's different. Charlie's trying to get over. He, he basically turned himself into a lawn dart at Leger and just headbutt the floor He's got this horrible whiplash injury, and although he's there's no broken bones, I think we've all felt that horrible tightness in your upper neck where you can't look left or right. Or you know, we're trying to unpick that, and we're going to go and see the physio on Wednesday about that, and then work through a day uh-huh. with Joe as well. Just where are you at? You know, are there any niggles that are causing you problems? That's what I want to work on, as opposed to going right. I want to see 160 kilos on the bar. Let's go. You know, that's <laughs> yeah. that's not me at all at the moment. Yeah, maintenance, recovery, just making yeah. sure everyone's ready to go hard again in the second half of the season, I guess. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Nice one. Cool. Well, it's been uh, it's been super interesting catching up. We're getting close to the end of our time. We've got final four questions and we asked them we asked three of them to you last last time you were on, uh, but there's one new one and that is what do you do every day that you feel benefits you? What do I do? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, I'll tell you what I do feel, okay, this is something, and this is, I might sound a bit deep doing this, but what I've started to do, and my wife does this as well, I get up really early with my daughter, and the, the temptation is to go straight to the phone and catch up on the news or bloody scroll. Uh-huh. And I've started to be a bit better at that, and I've just sat outside in the morning drinking a cup of tea. It's the summer, and we've got loads of birds in our garden, and I can just sit there and just try and take that on and just listen to them. And I, I, I'm not saying go and sit listen to the birds but i'm just saying 
maybe don't pick up the phone all the time um, because I don't think we need all the info that's been thrown at us. And I've, I've certainly felt as though I'm better when I've done that. And okay. I can see that I'm almost chasing my tail. If I've got in the morning, if I've started something too early or started too early, if you see what I mean, I think that's what I'm saying is just give yourself a bit of time to breathe, whether it's, you know, 10 minutes in the morning before you've actually got to do something. Yeah. Um, I've realized that I'm really not very good at just sitting there. I've got to be on my phone or scrolling through something or looking at something. And I do feel as though just sitting there and almost letting yourself get bored. It sounds weird, but trust me, if you, if you can do that and just sit there and just like, you know, just watch the world go by, I, I think that's, that's becoming lost at the moment. And I, I certainly, it helps me like, right. Okay. I'm now ready to, ready to go. Nice. Do you feel more productive throughout the day, do you think, as a result of that slower start? Yeah, definitely. And and I definitely feel as though I'm a bit calmer when I do that because getting two kids out first, you know, two kids out the door before eight o'clock, my wife starts work then, I've then probably got to go on to a gym to coach or drop another, like drop one of my daughters off to my mother-in-law before I then travel on somewhere. And it, it's... Yeah, I, I'm definitely an early bird and I find that when I when I do that and I can get up and I can have a quiet cup of tea and I can just sort of like process the day ahead of me, I, I think I'm better than if I'm just wake up, come downstairs, open up all my devices and try and start. I, I just think I'm chasing my tail then. Yeah, very nice. Cool. Well, if people want to find out a little bit more about you or keep up with what you're up to, where are the best places for them to look? I think... From um, the the two thing, the two places. One is my my website, um, millway.co.uk, is where I put information about the services I can offer people. I think that that's certainly something that some people feel is I just work with professional athletes, or you know, I don't take on any amateur guys, or I don't do remote coaching, and that's something I've certainly changed my mind on a bit. I, I felt as though with COVID, I had to embrace it because the athletes that I was working with, I couldn't carry it simply couldn't carry on the way i was doing because everything was shut and they had to stay at home yeah so i sort of felt as though i've evolved that and changed my mind on the way i approached that and that's been something i've been able to offer other people that's been brilliant and you know it's been really nice to work with people around the world if i'm honest with you in you know different countries at different levels who felt as though they they're making progress and that's been really good um and then instagram is where i you know i try and put interesting content up whether you think it's interesting i I don't know but i'm I'm just trying to showcase what i do and who i do it with and um maybe that be of interest so and i can certainly be contacted on there people often ask me questions and i'm more than happy to answer anything anyone wants to ask me so drop me a message or comment on something and i'll do my best to give you a a thoughtful answer nice one cool i'll put uh yeah put links to both those in the show notes so people can find them nice and easily but yeah, thanks a lot for your time. It's uh, It's been really interesting catching up and hearing what's going on in, in your world and getting your thoughts on a lot of stuff. So yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing all of that. And I hope the rest of the season goes well for yourself and for all of your athletes. Oh, I appreciate that. Nice to, nice to chat, Chris. Look forward to, uh, to catching up again soon. All right, that's it for this episode with Alan. I really hope you've enjoyed listening. A big thanks to Earshots for supporting this episode of the show. 
If you're looking for a pair of headphones for riding or training, which are comfortable and stay put, then Earshots are the ones for you. As a downtime listener, you can get 10% off by using the code DOWNTIME, all in uppercase, at the checkout over at earshots.com. Also, a big thank you to Nukeproof. They've just launched their first e-bike, the Megawatt, and it seems to be going down well, with super techie reviewer Seb Stott saying that they've knocked it out of the park. There's three models to check out and they're stocked with dealers now, so head to nukeproof.com to see the bikes and find out more. There's just one thing left for you to do, and that's to head over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP and leave us your name and email address to find out what we're up to and get the chance to be one of the first people on the planet to get your hands on a very special EP1. All the links are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you want to represent the show, then you can get hands on our full range of merch by heading over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop with all proceeds going to help improve the show. If you're still listening and you've got a bit of time, there's a few ways that you can help out. First off, tell your mates about the podcast because the more people who listen, the easier it is for me to keep this thing going. You can share the episodes on your social media. It's a great way to get some feedback and it's also a really good way to spread the word and get some buzz going around the episodes. Also, if you've got a couple of minutes, then a review over on Apple Podcasts goes a long way too. All right, we've got another awesome episode coming up soon. But until then, get out and ride. (laughs) 